This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Well, this has been quite a week. Uh, Vietnamese lesbian, gay and transgendered people marched in Little Saigon for the first time without incident to a welcoming crowd. One person even said, we're with you all the way. And there were some boos, but mostly it was positive. And so that was a good example of First Amendment in action. And today we're going to be focusing on the First Amendment with a talk given by the founding dean of the UCI Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky. And this comes in the wake of Monday, last Monday's uh, shutdown of the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, who was speaking at UC Irvine, or attempting to speak, and uh, students uh, yelled out uh, many names and um, disrupted the meeting. Uh, Eleven students were arrested, um, eight from UC Irvine, three from Riverside. And uh, you can go to the KUCI uh, website, KUCI.org slash subversity, for more on this uh, incident. Um, and that will be addressed also at this talk that uh, Erwin Chemerinsky gave last uh, Thursday uh, in the wake of this uh, issue over First Amendment. And so he addresses that, and we're going to hear the talk as he's introduced right now. Um, hello again, everyone, and thank you for coming. My name is uh, Raj Rajan. I'm with the Office of Equal Opportunity and Diversity, OAOD. OED works to coordinate the university's compliance with federal and state laws and university policies and procedures regarding discrimination, retaliation, and sexual harassment, and to promote and integrate the principles of equal opportunity, affirmative action, non-discrimination, and excellence through diversity. OUD provides a neutral avenue for students, faculty, and staff, and those individuals conducting business with the university to explore diversity-related topics and address matters related to equal opportunities, sexual harassment, and or discrimination. Today's event is part of the Office of Equal Opportunity and Diversity's Campus Conversation Series, which aims to provide the campus community with opportunities to engage in dialogue about contemporary topics related to equal opportunity and diversity. Uh, before we start, I would like to acknowledge and thank our co-sponsors for today's event. That include UCI's Difficult Dialogues, Cross-Cultural Center, Center for Citizenship and Peace Building, School of Humanities, School of Social Sciences, and uh, UCI's School of Law. Um, a couple of reminders before we start again. I want to uh, re-emphasize this. Thank you so much for all coming and for showing interest in uh, today's talk. Um, but we'd like for, to have a couple of reminders. The format is fairly simple. We have approximately an hour or so. Our guest speaker will talk for about 20 to 30 minutes. And then after that, you will have an opportunity to ask questions. The only request that we have that your questions be brief and succinct to the point so that we allow as many of you to have their opportunity to ask the question. And we hope all of you will ask the questions in a civil manner um, in line with our uh, university uh, standards. Um, also, I would like to thank our Assistant Vice Chancellor uh, and Executive Director of the Office of Equal Opportunity and Diversity, Ms. Kirsten Kwanbeck, my supervisor, for her support of uh, today's event and for the uh, Campus Conversation Series. The title of our event today is The First Amendment in a Multicultural Society. And the topic will be explored by Erwin Chemerinsky, the founding dean and distinguished professor of law at the University of California Irvine Law School. Chemerinsky frequently argues appellate cases in the United States Supreme Court and the United States Court of Appeals. He is the author of six books and more than 100 law review articles that have appeared in many prestigious journals such as the Harvard Law Review. He writes a regular column on the Supreme Court for California Lawyer, Los Angeles Daily Journal, The Trial Magazine, and his expert opinion is frequently sought by others in the news media. In April 2005, he was named one of the top 20 legal thinkers in America by Legal Affairs. 
please help me welcome Dean Chemerinsky. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Thanks to all of you for taking some of your lunch time to come here today. It's really an honor and a pleasure to get to speak with you. As you know, the meaning of the First Amendment came to campus this week. I intentionally say that it's not that the First Amendment came to campus or free speech came to campus, because the First Amendment and free speech are here every day. And it's not the first time that the meaning of the free speech meaning of the First Amendment, has come to this campus. Not even the first time it's come to campus in the context of controversy or controversy over the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Last spring, for example, there was a speaker on campus, Malik Ali, who, among other things, called for the end of the State of Israel. My email, my phone, was filled with messages saying, shouldn't the campus be able to exclude him? He's expressing, hey, what role does that have on campus? As you know, on Monday of this week, when the Israeli ambassador was here, a group of individuals tried to interfere by shouting out. They were arrested. They were escorted off the premises. Those who were students faced discipline. My email, my phone has been filled the last couple of days with those who were saying, isn't this free speech? Aren't they protected by the First Amendment? The irony, of course, is that this talk was scheduled long ago. It's only coincidental that it happens to be this week. And what I was planning on talking about is the general principles of the First Amendment that apply not only to multicultural society generally, but on a college campus more specifically. And that's still what I'd like to do today. <laughs> but... It would be biopic to pretend that the events of this week didn't happen. And so what I want to try to do is sketch out the general principles about freedom of speech, First Amendment on campus, and then apply them to some of the disputes that we've had here, including what happened this week. So what I'd like to do is divide my brief remarks into three parts. First, I want to ask the question, why protect freedom of speech? Second, I want to ask, what are the general principles of free speech, especially those that apply on college campuses? And then third, how do those principles apply to some of the disputes that we've seen here on the UCI campus? And as was said, I'll talk about 30 minutes and we'll leave the rest of our time for questions. I do think it's important to start with the question, why protect free speech? Because I think we can only analyze what speech is safeguarded under what circumstances, in the context of this larger question. There's a voluminous literature among constitutional scholars, among judges and justices, among political scientists, trying to answer the question. I don't think there's any single answer to the question why we protect speech. There's many reasons. In part, it's about facilitating self-government. Hard to imagine how a democracy could work without freedom of speech. It's speech that allows us to advocate for one candidate and to criticize another. It's speech which allows us to praise what the government's doing or challenge what the government's doing with the hope of changing the government's policies. That's as true on campuses as anywhere else. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was anti-Vietnam War protests on college campuses that played a key role in convincing Lyndon Johnson not to seek re-election in 1968 in turning public attitudes more generally against the Vietnam War. Earlier in the same decade, it was college students rallying on behalf of civil rights, including on campuses, who made an enormous difference. We need only look at totalitarian countries how much they try to suppress speech to get a clear sense of how essential speech is to self-government. We also protect free speech because it's a path towards enlightenment, towards better understanding. Speech under the First Amendment that's protected is not just limited to that that relates to politics 
and self-government. Much more than that is protected. That's because we believe that the exchange of ideas will help inform us all. And we hope that in the long term, it will further the search for truth. Long ago, John Stuart Mill expressed this in his book On Liberty. Some of you may have read it in political science or English courses. He says, let all speech be uttered. Let the false speech be refuted. And let the true emerge. The late Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes took this further in coining the phrase, the marketplace of ideas. It's a wonderful romantic notion. Let all ideas be expressed with the hope that in the end, the good ones will triumph. The truth will emerge. Just as Holmes said, the best remedy for the speech we don't like is more speech, not censorship or silence. Will truth always emerge in the marketplace of ideas? History shows us no. Are there going to be instances where terrible results can come from free speech? History shows us yes. And yet history also teaches that the alternative to the marketplace of ideas is to let the government decide what's true and what's false. And such imposed orthodoxy inevitably is worse than that which emerges from the marketplace of ideas. Free speech is also protected because it's an important part of autonomy. When an individual expresses himself or herself, a person is exercising a key aspect of autonomy. Part of our personhood is the ability to express ourselves. We express ourselves in countless ways. We express ourselves through our clothes and our appearance, with what we say and don't say, where we go and where we don't go. Now, of course, there's a danger in just focusing on autonomy. The expression of ideas may be the autonomy of some, but it can also limit the autonomy of others. And at times we have to balance the autonomy of varying groups in deciding who we're going to protect and who not. There's a final reason why I think we protect free speech. One that often gets overlooked. I think that a central value of the First Amendment is tolerance. In fact, I think a unifying principle of all the disparate parts of the First Amendment is the importance of tolerance. Speech isn't at the beginning of the First Amendment. Religion is. Talks about how the government can't adopt a law respecting the establishment of religion or abridging the free exercise thereof. Why have those provisions? Tolerance. We are a very diverse society with regard to religious views. The Free Exercise Clause assures that each of us can practice our religion in any way we want or practice no religion. The government can't establish a religion but do anything respecting the establishment of religion because inevitably that will have a coercive effect encouraging some and discouraging others from worshipping as they choose. Well, likewise, I think a key value of the First Amendment that comes to freedom of speech is tolerance. We need to be tolerant of the messages we dislike as well as the messages we like. The reality is we don't need constitutional protection of free speech for the speech that we approve of and that we agree with. Society would naturally allow the speech that the majority likes, but constitutional protection of free speech is all about is the unpopular message the message that the majority might want to silence or censor. I don't think any of this is controversial, but I also don't think that we can talk about free speech on campus, or even the incidents here at UCI, with an eye towards, why do we protect free speech? Well, if you accept what this quick overview of why I protect free speech would say, let me go to the second part of what I want to talk about. What principles guide free speech on college campuses? Let me again articulate several for you. And once more, I don't think that these are controversial. I think both liberals and conservatives could agree with what I'm going to say in terms of general principles. The first, the starting point should be to remember that free speech applies only in public universities. The First Amendment doesn't apply in private universities. More generally, of course, the Constitution's protection of liberties 
applies only to the government. Private conduct doesn't have to comply with the Constitution. This is so often forgotten. The Constitution and its protection of liberties applies just to the government. Easy examples. As you may know, before I arrived on campus a year and a half ago, I was a professor at Duke Law School. Duke University is a private school. If I were to give a speech there criticizing the president of the university, I guess say if I were to again give a speech criticizing the president, <laughs> and he would have ordered me fired, I could not have sued the president of the university or the university for violating my free speech rights. Since Duke is a private school, the First Amendment doesn't apply. Duke certainly, as a matter of university policy, can choose to protect free speech. But that's as a matter of university policy. The First Amendment doesn't apply. This, of course, is a state university. So if I would give a speech criticizing Chancellor Michael Drake, or I can say if I would again give a speech criticizing Michael Drake, <laughs> I'm actually a huge fan of Michael Drake, but, um, and he would have ordered me fired, I could sue. I would sue if he fired me on the basis of my speech, since this is a state university. My other illustration of this very basic constitutional principle comes from a true story of a conversation I had with my older, older, older two children, and it was now 17 years ago, when they were nine and six, and we were in a grocery store. At the time, Diet Coke was giving away free baseball cards, and three cards were pictured on the outside of the package. And as we walked up and down the aisles of the grocery store, my two sons were arguing over who was going to get the extra baseball cards. They thought since three were pictured on the outside of the package, there'd be three cards inside, and they wanted to know who was going to get the extra one. Finally, I said, be quiet. I don't want to hear anything else about baseball cards when we leave the grocery store. My then nine-year-old turned to me and said, you can't tell me to be quiet. I've got freedom of speech. <laughs> I was ready for him. I said, freedom of speech means that the government can't tell you to be quiet. I'm not the government, so I can't. <laughs> to which he, without missing a beat, turned to me and said, well, you're like the government to me, so you shouldn't be able to tell me to be quiet. <laughs> True story. So I first knew that someday he was going to go to law school. <laughs> These examples illustrate something profoundly important. Free speech under the First Amendment applies on public university campuses like this one. When it comes to private universities, the First Amendment doesn't apply. They can have their own policies and rules, but it's not constitutional. Second principle that I would identify is that the constitutional protection of free speech is not absolute. Every time I teach a course with regard to freedom of speech, whether to undergraduates in political science or in law school, I've always got some students say, free speech is absolute. That, too, is a wonderfully romantic notion. It means you never have to engage in any balancing. But it's also wrong. Long ago, another thing that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said is that free speech doesn't protect the right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. It's obvious why that is so. I can give you countless examples that I think could persuade you that free speech can't be absolute. Think of perjury laws, laws that make it a crime to falsely testify on the road. They punish people for their speech. Think of sexual harassment laws. The employer who says to an employee, sleep with me or you'll be fired. That's punishing speech. But of course the employer can and should be punished for that. Bank robbery laws. The person who walks into a bank and gives a note and says, give me the money or I'll blow up the bank. The person says to the defense, well, I didn't really have a bomb, it was just speech. That will lose as a defense in any court. <laughs> I could go on and on with examples, but free speech is never an absolute. The government can always punish speech if it is a compelling reason or again, in the words of Oliver Holmes, if there's a clear and present danger. Third principle. Generally, the government cannot punish speech based on its content. Generally, the government cannot deny what speech to allow or what speech to prohibit based on the viewpoint expressed or even the topic discussed. 
Let me give you an easy example to explain it. Imagine that a city would have an ordinance saying that it would allow pro-war demonstrations in a park, but it wouldn't allow anti-war demonstrations in the park. That would be seen as going to the very heart of the First Amendment. Surely no government could say, we'll allow speech praising of the president or the governor or the mayor, and only punish speech critical of the president, the governor or the mayor. Such viewpoint discrimination is inimical to what free speech is all about. Not long ago, Washington, D.C. had an ordinance that said there could not be demonstrations within a couple hundred feet of a foreign embassy that were likely to be embarrassing to the foreign government. Speech was allowed, it was praising the foreign government, it was to be punished, it was critical of the foreign government. Not surprisingly, the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. That kind of viewpoint discrimination is inconsistent with the First Amendment. It's about self-government. It's about enlightenment through the marketplace of ideas. Just as the government can't stop speech about a particular viewpoint, nor generally can it punish speech on a particular topic. I'll give you an example and then I again can explain. Chicago adopted an ordinance that said there could be no picketing in residential neighborhoods unless it was a labor protest related to a place of employment. So speech was allowed if it was a labor protest, but not on any other topic. The Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. Why? Well, imagine in the South, in the early 1960s, a city said that we'll allow any demonstrations in the park, but not civil rights-related demonstrations. We won't allow pro-segregation or anti-segregation demonstrations. Now, the real effect of that would be to stop the civil rights protesters. So that kind of topic-based restriction on speech would really, in effect, be a viewpoint restriction on speech. And so the Supreme Court has said, unless there are compelling reasons, the government cannot single out speech and punish it just because of the idea expressed, the viewpoint, or the topic. Now, there are exceptions to this. There's some kind of speech that the Supreme Court has said isn't protected. Incitement of illegal activity, obscenity, false and deceptive advertising. Those are categories that the Supreme Court has said the government, for compelling reasons, can punish. But each of them has been defined to be quite limited as to the speech that can be punished. So, if you can accept my first three principles, I think the fourth then follows from it that some government property is available for speech under some circumstances. The Supreme Court has recognized that the ability to use government for speech is essential in order of ideas communicated. But it can't be that all government property is available for speech under all circumstances. People can't stage a rally at rush hour down the middle of the 405 freeway. People can't go into the Supreme Court when it's in session and yell whatever they want to keep the justice from conducting moral argument. And so the Supreme Court has broadly speaking said there are some kinds of government properties that should be regarded as public forums where there's a right to use them for speech purposes. And there's some kinds of government properties that are non-public forums where there's no right to use the property for speech purposes. Sidewalks and parks would be classic public forums. I've given you examples of non-public forums already. The 405 freeway at rush hour. The Supreme Court when oral arguments are in session. Now, lawyers can litigate and argue over whether a particular piece of property is a public forum or a non-public forum. But it's very important as we talk about campuses. There are parts of this campus that I think are unquestionably public forums. There are outdoor spaces that I think the university has to make available for speech. But there are also places on this campus that are non-public forums. If you come into my class while I'm teaching and you yell out and disrupt my class, you can be disciplined. You can even be arrested. My classroom is not a public forum. It's a place for teaching. It's a place for a specific purpose. That's my classroom. Obviously, any classroom when classes are in session. Now, even as to public forums, the government is allowed to regulate. And the phrase 
you've probably heard it on campus this week, is there can be reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. Even as to the place that the government is constitutionally required to make available for speech, the government can have time, place, and manner restrictions. And so, for example, this campus could say that certain kind of protests can't occur after 10 p.m. so as to protect tranquility. This campus or any campus would say there's certain places in which we'll allow demonstrations and others where we won't because we want to stop classes or research or use the library. Certain manner of speech can be prohibited. I think this campus could prohibit bullhorns and sound trucks while it can't outlaw all speech. And we can argue and lawyers can litigate over what are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, but it's clear that they can be there. Example, city adopted an ordinance that said there could be no trucks with sound amplification equipment operating in residential neighborhoods at nighttime. The Supreme Court upheld it. Even though sidewalks, streets are a public forum, it's not absolute. Quite that's a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. It leaves open adequate alternative places for communication. So these are the principles of speech applying society generally and on campuses more specifically. So having talked about the more general, now let me in the third and final part of my remarks address the specific. How do these principles apply to some of the controversies that we've had at UCI, including this week? Let me give three examples one a bit further removed from UCI in terms of controversy, the other two much more about this campus. The first involves a case that's now pending before the United States Supreme Court that certainly relates to groups on this campus as well. The case here is Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. You're likely to read a lot about it in the news in the next few months. Christian Legal Society is a group of Christian law students at Hastings Law School. They had certain precepts among them, that homosexuality was wrong, and thus, effectively, they were a group that was not welcome to gay and lesbian students. The University of California at Hastings Law School up in San Francisco had the policy that a student group could not have official law school recognition unless it was open to all students, that any student group that discriminated could not get school recognition. It means they couldn't use the bulletin board to put up their announcements, they couldn't get student activity funds and the like. The Christian Legal Society sued the dean of the law school saying that it violated their First Amendment rights, their free association rights, that they should be able to have whoever they want as members. If they want to exclude those who don't follow their Christian precepts, they should be able to do so. The lower federal courts ruled in favor of Hastings Law School. The United States Supreme Court granted review. You can think how this might apply here on this campus. Can there be student groups that are officially recognized at the University of California at Irvine, getting all the benefits that bestows, that exclude some students? I hope that the United States Supreme Court will side with Hastings Law School here. As a dean of a law school at a public university, I believe that all student groups that are officially recognized must be open to all students in the school. Now, if there's a group of students that don't want to be open, they can meet off campus. They can get together on their own anytime they want. But if they want the benefits that come with being officially recognized, they should be available to all students. No group that's exclusive, no group that discriminates, should be able to take the money of the university, the money from other students with student activity fees, to be able to further that discrimination. We'll see what the Supreme Court does in the next few months. Second example, what about hate speech on campus? Now, for purpose of this, I don't need to define hate speech. You can think of your own example of vile hate speech. You can think of racial epithets that might be uttered. You can think of derogatory things that can be said about a particular group. Can a campus prohibit and punish hate speech? The answer is clearly no. However despicable the message, this is the First Amendment right to utter it. The First Amendment, as I said, safeguards the ability to express the messages we like, but also the messages that we abhor. In the early 1980s, the Nazi party 
wanted to march to Skokie, Illinois. They picked Skokie on purpose. It was a predominantly Jewish suburb of Chicago, with a large number of Holocaust survivors. And Skokie tried to stop them from marching, saying that they're advocating genocide. They're inciting violence. They're causing psychic pain. And the courts all ruled against Skokie and in favor of the Nazi party. And they did so based on the principles that I mentioned to you earlier. The government can't single out any idea, however repugnant the majority find it, and say it can't be expressed. That there is a right to use the sidewalks and the parks to express views, so long as reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions are followed. In the 1980s and into the 1990s, over 200 colleges across the company, country adopted so-called hate speech codes. And the hate speech codes were phrased in varying ways. And they all were motivated by the best intentions. They were all about trying to further equality on campus, trying to make campus a place where everyone can feel comfortable, where everyone feels welcome. Every court that has ruled on a hate speech code is declared unconstitutional because there isn't a category of hate speech that's unprotected by the First Amendment. More recently, the Supreme Court considered a Virginia law that prohibited cross-burning, a particularly vile way of expressing hate through American history. And the Supreme Court, in an 8-1 decision, declared the law unconstitutional, saying that there is a right to burn a cross as a way of expressing a message. Now, there's no right to threaten another. There is no right to make another feel fear for his or her safety. At the point at which hate speech becomes a verbal assault, that it reasonably causes a person to fear for his or safety, then that speech can be punished. Threats are never protected by the First Amendment. But the expression of hate, even in a pugnant way, is speech protected by the First Amendment. Went to a meeting last spring with a number of people in the community. And the first two talked about Malika Lee and what he said on campus last spring. They said, how can we make sure he never comes here to speak again? And I said, you can't. He has the First Amendment right on campus to speak. You may agree or you may disagree with him. But there's no doubt that somebody who comes and expresses his message has the right to do so. And any effort by the university to stop him would immediately be followed by a lawsuit, and the lawsuit would surely succeed. There isn't any set of ideas that can be excluded by a college campus, no matter how unpopular the idea is. If you don't like what Malikali says, bring in your own speakers. Demonstrate outside against him in a peaceful way. But you can't silence speech just because you don't like it. If there's any place in our society that should be truly the marketplace of ideas, where all views are expressed, all views are discussed, it has to be the college campus. Well, finally, my example, what about Monday night? My guess is the reason the attendance is larger than expected and they moved to a larger venue was the events from Monday night. I think that the university handled it in exactly the right way. There was a speaker brought to campus, and as I understand it, one after another, individuals stood up and yelled out to disrupt it. And I heard from several in emails and messages that they were just expressing their free speech rights. But remember, free speech isn't absolute. Remember, there can be time, place, and manner restrictions. You have the right to disagree with me by going outside and giving your own speech, holding up signs and banners, and there will be a question and answer period where, so long as you're brief, you can disagree with me there too. <laughs> but you don't have the First Amendment right to come in here now in a sponsored activity and try to shout me down. The university can create a time, place, and manner restriction that protects them. In fact, the university has to have such a rule. Otherwise, a group can always silence a speaker just through a heckler's veto. Anybody who didn't like what was said on Monday night could prevent that person from speaking just by shouting them down. And then when somebody from an opposing view came, well, that person could be shouted down. Babble results. The Supreme Court has long made clear that we can't tolerate a heckless veto or otherwise, effectively, there is no free speech. And so I do not believe that those who interfered with the speech on Monday
can reasonably claim that what they were doing was protected by free speech. It's not protected under the First Amendment. They can be punished for disruption. They can be disciplined by the university. I make no judgment about what they should be. The processes that are being followed need to come to their completion. But I also think it's a mistake to say that there's any free speech right to disrupt other speakers. That's not consistent with the principles of the First Amendment that I mentioned. Free speech raises for any college campus some of the most sensitive and difficult issues. But of course, if you think about it, we wouldn't have constitutional protection for free speech if it didn't matter. If free speech was something that was irrelevant to all of us, it would hardly be in the First Amendment to the Constitution. And I think that the best solution for all, on any side of dispute, is what the First Amendment is all about. Tolerance. The expression and discussion of ideas. Being respectful for the expression and discussion of all ideas. And if that happens, then a university is really fulfilling its highest mission. I've talked my half hour and I'm glad to take your questions. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Monday. That was Irvin Chelinsky, the law school dean at UCI on First Amendment on the question. This is KUCI Subversity Program. It's very constructive and part of the solution rather than vicious attacks and threats. Uh, you talked about Amir Abdelmalik. He was, I've been to many of his talks, he was disrupted. And I've seen many times where other speakers were disrupted. And you can go to YouTube or Google it. Many, many events are disrupted all over the country. I've never seen um, this kind of like vicious attacks against the protesters or the disruptors. Um, so what do you have to say about selective enforcement of laws? Um, also, I want to ask about what process do you use as a law school? Because you could select which events you want to co-sponsor. And I think a lot of the anger came behind the fact that um, many speakers who represent one side of the issue were always co-sponsored by the school. They got the law school. They got um, the chancellor to be there. Um, um, and so many of the protesters, I've talked to them, they seem to agree that the speaker that was invited does not stand for free speech. Just last year, he sent, I don't want to make a, a political statement, but he does not stand for a lot of the values you talked about. So uh, these are the two points uh, I want you to talk about. Sure. As to the latter point, it's an easy question. I have co-sponsored every event on campus that the law school's been active co-sponsor, so long as it doesn't cost the law school any money to do so. <laughs> I don't have any money when we co-sponsor, so I think many of you have asked me to co-sponsor something this year. I've said, do you want money from the law school? Because we don't have any to offer. But if you're just asking us to co-sponsor, I have not said no to any event that the law school has been asked to co-sponsor. I would co-sponsor any speaker on campus of any viewpoint with regard to Israeli-Palestinian dispute or with regard to any else. I probably would want some tie into law in some way, but pretty remote in that way. But I practice no viewpoint discrimination, no subject matter discrimination other than the tie into law. And in that sense, it's, it's an easy question, and I'll continue to do that as long as I'm the dean of the law school. I want the law school to be co-sponsoring events that bring ideas and discussion to campus. Um, second, I obviously am against selective enforcement. And we need to talk about selective enforcement. I promise you that I will stand up and speak loudly for the right of those who take the Palestinian position, if there is one, with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, and equally loudly speak in front of those who take the more Israeli side of that dispute. I want to practice no viewpoint discrimination. Likewise, I will speak very loudly that anyone who disrupts a speaker should be appropriately disciplined. That disrupting a speaker is not an appropriate form of discourse on campus. Um, and I believe that the Israeli ambassador had the right to speak here. I believe that those who take the other position in the dispute have the right to speak here. But those who disrupt them are acting in a way not in accord with the campus rules and not in accord with the First Amendment. Professor, uh, thank you for coming. Um, so it's a little bit long, sorry. Um, basically, uh, civil disobedience is a part of the fabric of American society. Uh, if it wasn't for activists like Martin Luther King, who took a stand and protested in a nonviolent manner, uh, many of the opportunities afforded to us today would probably not be available. Um, 
those uh, courageous enough to be a part of the civil rights movement were often punished dis disproportionately as well. Um, so on Monday, uh, students chose to make a stand and speak up to a representative of a nation responsible for more human rights violations than any other nation. Um, and after demonstrations, uh, I believe the ambassador was still allowed to finish his speech. Uh, after all of this, people screamed foul. So uh, my question is, uh, what role does uh, civil disobedience play in this discourse about free speech, and what role do you think um, this like, legacy of civil disobedience should play in the decision-making of the administration? Civil disobedience is very important as a way of expressing ideas, as a way of convincing others. But one key part of civil disobedience is if you break the law, then you're also accepting as part of civil disobedience that you can be punished for that. And so people can break the law in the name of civil disobedience, but they then know that they're punished. You're not excused from punishment if you break the law just because you say, I'm being civilly disobedient. You mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King. I'll give you an example of this. You've probably read, and if you haven't, you should, the letter from Birmingham Jail. We may not remember the context in which that happened. He wanted to stage a march on Easter Sunday in Birmingham, Alabama. A racist state court judge issued an injunction saying that the march could not happen. Dr. King went ahead with the march anyway and was arrested. And the United States Supreme Court, in a case called Walker v. City of Birmingham, said that he could be punished for violating the judge's order. He was civilly disobedient, but part of that was he had to take the consequences of it. There's a wonderful civil rights museum in Birmingham, Alabama. If you're there, I encourage you to go to it. And if you go to it, you'll see the jail cell where he wrote that. And it's the notion of, yes, you can commit civil disobedience, but if you break the law, then you take the consequences of that. And I will leave for the courts to decide if the law was violated. Now, I want to make one other point. Each of the last two questions made comments about Israel and whether it's violating human rights. Um, I don't want by my silence to indicate that I'm agreeing with that. It's just beyond the scope of my talk. Uh, others who are much more knowledgeable can come and have a discussion about whether Israel is or is not violating human rights. I'm here to talk about free speech. Other questions? Come on up to the microphone. Thank you very much for coming, Adrian. Um, my question goes as far as, as far as we talk about free speech, what, certain groups on this campus, or certain things have been said to slander certain groups that affects maybe um, their rights. Okay, it affects, it affects kind of the politics on the campus as far as what is going on, who's co-sponsoring, what type of events. As far as civil disobedience goes, and as far as, as far as that, that reputation that is built up of certain groups on campus. What do you recommend them to do if their voices are not being heard through any other form besides civil disobedience? I would hope that this campus will do everything it can to make all of its students of all views, all races, all religions, feel comfortable and feel that this is an environment in which they can learn, which is ultimately what the university is about. Um, I would hope that this university will make its facilities equally available for all viewpoints to be expressed. I've been on campus only a year and a half. Many of you have been here much longer than me. But it's certainly my sense of it. And I know that at times groups feel that their view isn't the popular view. But it's different than saying that the group doesn't have the opportunity to express itself. I would hope that there would be many opportunities to express other than civil disobedience. There's plenty of space on campus for views to be expressed. And if there's any student who feels that he or she is being punished for lawful speech, come see me. I'll be the first one to stand up for you, whatever your viewpoint, and give you the right to do it. Go ahead. You want to follow up? Yeah, just, sorry, follow up. Maybe, to maybe to clarify my point, I don't mean that as far as the facilities not being equal. I mean as far, because I believe that I don't think about the facilities being equal. What I'm talking about is the opportunity being equal. As far as like, Okay, let's say group X has a certain amount of pressure from a community, has a certain amount of certain amount of influence. And because of that, the school is able to it puts on more events and is able to co-sponsor more events for group X. Whereas group Y, because of that political pressure, the school will refrain from that group, will put that group, you know, kind of on the back, shove them to the back. What are groups supposed to do then? How is he supposed to get your message when you're going student groups versus political pressure? 
I don't know if actually that's true or not, so it's hard to answer. Um, I also work, you know, there's a very famous study done by a social psychologist by the name of Hans Toth about a football game between Princeton and Dartmouth. And those of you who take social psychology may remember it. And he showed the film of the football game to students at each of those schools and asked who was responsible for the fight that broke out. And all the students at one school said it was the students from the other and all the students vice versa. And there's always the danger, I think, of each side can say, we're really the victims. They get their chance to express themselves all the time, but we don't. I don't know if on campus that's so. The one thing that I can say, having been here for a year and a half, is I truly believe that Chancellor Michael Drake wants to create this as a forum where all views can be expressed. That I think that he has been criticized sharply from every side of this. But having spoken to him at length, I don't think there could be a chancellor who more wants this to be a forum for all ideas to be expressed than him. And if you feel that there's one side that's not getting their fair chance to express, I think he would go out of his way to make sure that it happens. Let me let others ask questions. I want to address a very different aspect of free speech. During your talk, you used, at one point, a metaphor I've never liked, and that is the marketplace of ideas. It always sounded to me a bit like ideas were being bought and sold. The reason I particularly want to get on this is the recent Supreme Court decision about corporations. I know you've written on this subject, and I'd like you to address the uh, question of whether or not that is an issue of free speech. So much more comfortable to talk about that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to defend the marketplace of ideas metaphor. I didn't coin it. I think what it really does is simply say, let all ideas expressed, and then we have the hope that the discussion will lead to more enlightenment. And the alternative to that is government censorship. Um, I'm very critical, as you know, of the Supreme Court decision from about three weeks ago that said that corporations have the right to spend unlimited amounts of money in election campaigns. Now, there's many reasons for that. It goes back to where I started. Um, autonomy is one reason we protect speech. Autonomy is something about individuals, about personhood. Corporations don't have autonomy. They're fictional entities. I worry about, when you phrase the marketplace of ideas, I worry that corporate wealth can have a real distorting effect with regard to political elections. I think that there's a real danger that corporate spending can drown out other voices and have disproportionate influence. For a century, there have been federal laws regulating corporate spending in elections. Many of those were invalidated by what the Supreme Court did a few weeks ago. So in that sense, I think it was a quite radical decision that's going to change the nature of elections. It's a short answer to the question. Um, it doesn't really relate to you know, free speech in a multicultural society. But it is why I'm very concerned about it. I just don't think corporations have the same rights as individuals under the First Amendment. And even if they did, I think there's a compelling interest in limiting corporate spending in elections so as to create a more even playing field for elective office. Okay, I have a few questions. Number one. Let's do them one at a time. Yeah, number one. The 12 protesters went and they spoke what they had to say. And then while watching the video clip, you saw a teacher ranting on about how they're all going to fail their exams. And then there's other protesters that sat down, like, flicking off the protesters to begin with. Are they not going to get any punishment either? Or is it just the 12 protesters at UCI campus that we're dealing with? Again, what punishment will happen to them through the legal system or through the university is now in process. But I want to draw a distinction between the two things that you said. Those who stood up and shouted down the ambassador and those who use an obscene gesture. They're very different. Shouting down a speaker who's permissibly present isn't behavior protected by the First Amendment. If somebody comes now and tries to shout me down, that's not speech that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, what you did, what I did, is speech protected by the First Amendment. So I'm going to use the word if. If individuals intentionally disrupted an event on Monday night, the First Amendment doesn't protect what they did. And then the courts will have to decide what occurred and what punishment is appropriate. The university will have to decide as to student discipline. I don't like obscene gestures. I don't use them even in traffic situations. <laughs> <laughs> but it's different than disrupting by keeping somebody from speaking. And so 
it's crude, it's inappropriate, but there's a different effect of that than keeping somebody else from being able to be heard. Okay. Next question. Next question. You were talking about the clear and present, present danger. I took your class before, so I kind of understand what the whole clear and present danger is. However, I don't believe that the 12 students displayed a clear and present danger because they basically just spoke what they had to say. They weren't threatening the ambassador. They weren't threatening anyone else in the audience. They were basically, yeah, their speech, I don't believe it's freedom of speech. I don't think that they could claim that. But I don't think that they were threatening anyone. I think what you do is make a mistake of saying, because the government can punish speech when there's a clear and present danger, that therefore the government can only punish speech when there's a clear and present danger. Oh, no, I One know. doesn't follow the other. Let's take false advertising. False advertising is not protected by the First Amendment. You don't need to prove a clear and present danger. Threats. There is no First Amendment right to make a true threat, that's the phrase the court used, against another. Don't have to show a clear and present danger. If you send a letter to the President of the United States threatening the President's life, you can be punished. No need for any court to have to find a clear and present danger. Again, I'll use the word if. If the students on Monday disrupted the speaker from keeping the speaker from being heard, that's not speech protected by the First Amendment. There doesn't have to be a clear and present danger in order for them to be punished for that. If somebody shouts out now for a long time and keeps me from being heard, they can be punished for that. That can be disturbing the peace, even without a clear and present danger. So the key to remember of the First Amendment is speech can be punished if there's a clear and present danger. But speech can be punished in certain circumstances even without a clear and present danger. Okay, and my final question is I've been hearing rumors that the MSU is going to be closed by the university because of what the 12 processes did. Would that ever be a question? I have not heard that. It's inconceivable to me that this university would ever do that. Freedom of association is also a First Amendment right on campus. And so I would hope that the university would never do such a thing. I can't imagine knowing Michael Drake that the university would go in that direction. I've not heard anything like that. Okay. Thank you. How's it going? Uh, I just had a quick question. You were talking about when there's a clear and present danger that you know someone can be arrested for that or there will be punishment for that. Something that we noticed, I, I think a lot of the reason that people are asking about a bias in the protesters being arrested and nobody else was, during the whole process, you know, in front of the police there were a lot of people shouting, well basically like death threats. You know, there was a guy that walked up to a group of people and said, we're going to kill you all like dogs. And there were plenty of people that were, you know, there was a lot of racial things said. So if there's a clear and present danger, if somebody says they're going to kill you like a dog, that seems like a death threat to me. Shouldn't there have been action against them? Again, I don't know what was said, and I don't know the context in which it was said. Um, it is really hard to talk about hypothetical. There are ways in which that you can say to somebody, I'm going to kill you, in which, no, it's not a true threat. And there's ways in which you can say, I'm going to kill you, in which it is a true threat. The question would be, is it a true threat? So I don't know in that context what was said or how it was said. On the other hand, to say we're going to arrest people for certain activities doesn't mean you have to arrest everything. And as I understand it from what I've seen from Monday night, the individuals were warned that if they did this, it would be disturbing the peace and that therefore they'd be arrested. That's what I was saying is what any university can do by way of time, place, manner, restriction. Oh, so I, I'm just wondering, how do you differentiate then between the two? Because, I mean, either way it seems pretty serious. So, is it up to just one's judgment to decide if they feel like it's a real threat or not? Sure. Always, police have to make a judgment. Ultimately, courts have to make a judgment. And we're talking about different principles. One is, is there a true threat? The other is, is there a disturbance of the peace? There may be places they overlap, but they're not identical. For the interest of time, I know we, as we advertise our event, it should conclude at one o'clock. So, I, your permission, Dean, would you? Be okay? Last question. Is that okay with you? Last question. Okay. Uh, my question is: You brought up the themes of hate speech, and you also brought up the themes of incitement. Where, uh, in general, where is the line drawn between incitement of violence and terrorism, sure. and uh, hate speech? And how how does terrorism and support of terrorism fall into this? Uh, uh, here. Sure. In 30 seconds or less. Um, the Supreme Court has said that there's a test for when something is incitement, not protected by the First Amendment. 
The case was Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. It said that people can be punished for incitement if there's a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity and if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal activity. That's a tough test to meet. You can only punish somebody for inciting if there's a substantial likelihood that the speech is going to cause imminent illegality and if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegality. In terms of terrorist activity, um, it's a broad question. Obviously, if somebody would be inciting terrorist activity and meet that test, they could be punished. On the other hand, there are certainly things of aiding and abetting terrorist activity that can be punished, even if it doesn't meet to the test of incitement. Um, there isn't a First Amendment right to give money, for example, to a terrorist group, and people can be punished for that. Um, but we need to talk much more specifically about what particular laws and what specific applications with regard to terrorist activity we're talking about. Let me conclude by thanking you again for coming and thanking you so much for the respect that you treated me. That was uh, law school dean, UC Irvine law school dean, uh, Erwin Chemerinsky, talking about the First Amendment in the wake of Monday's disruption of this talk given by Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren. And we're going to go now to uh, clips of some um, audio from that session. Stay tuned. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. It is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce a man that I have great respect for, Ambassador Michael Oren. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you all. Shalom. It is a great delight to be back at UCI. I spoke here about five, six years ago to a somewhat smaller gathering. It is a source of frustration that as a person who spent much of his life speaking Hebrew... Michael Oren! Propagating murder is not an expression of free speech! That was Mark Petraka. And said, for some reason that I can't fathom, oh, are you going to have a hard job? <laughs> and then later I met the foreign minister of Israel.
Well, that was some of the audio from the raucous meeting that uh, Ambassador Michael Oren from Israel uh, encountered when he came to UC Irvine to try to give his talk on Israeli-U.S. Um, relations um, last Monday. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. We earlier heard Michael, uh, so, sorry, Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, the founding dean of the UC Irvine Law School, talk about First Amendment and address the issues raised by this uh, incident on campus where some 11 students were arrested, eight from UC Irvine, three from Riverside, and they face disciplinary action, including and up to expulsion even, and also were um, disip- could be disciplined um, administratively, but uh, arrested for disrupting the meeting. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here. Uh, there's a Facebook page, and you can go to the UC Irvine, uh, KUCI, I mean, uh, Subversity page for more information on the Facebook page, um, which uh, has been posted to support the 11 uh, people that were arrested. Uh, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.